This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Sho Ying Sin. Uh, she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University. And we're going to be talking about Mahua literature today. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Ying Sin. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming on the me. show. Mm. So I think uh, last year at the Georgetown Festival, uh, Mahua literature received quite a bit of a spotlight. Mm. There were a few uh, writers that were invited over to really discuss, you know, this, I guess you would call it either a category or sort of like literature that apparently is very vibrant mm. uh, in Malaysia. Uh, and it's a transnational sort of like, you know, a category of literature mm. as well. But to an audience who is not familiar with, say, the Chinese language, mm. I guess uh, it's also something that is quite foreign mm. and people don't really sort of like know very much about it. Mm. Maybe as a sort of like general introduction, could you sort of like, you know, walk us through what is the current sort of like, you know, debates around sort of Mahal literature? How would you categorize this genre or this sort of like feel of mm. literary writings? Yeah, it's um so like as general introduction, the Chinese Malaysian literature or Mahua literature has been in this region for many, many years. Since mm. the Chinese arrived actually they they wrote uh literature, poems and um a lot of other things where they publish in newspapers mostly so but the so-called new literature Xingwenxue was actually kind of an offshoot from the May 4th literature in, in China so it was 1919 so usually the literary historians will classify Mahua literature as a new literature uh, vernacular literature so since something that happened after 1919 okay. 1919 okay. so since 1919 there, there have been a few different categories and different stages uh, especially during the um, the war period mm-hmm. or before war there were um, different targets and different style of writings and after the war also there are different ideological camps especially during the cold war so mm-hmm. there were you know debates on um, realist social realist writings and also the modernist writings and, and what was the modernist writing is it a more experimental sort of like style of writing yeah. or wow. so actually i would think that um, during that time, especially slightly before and after the war, the social realist um, writings has been kind of mainstream in uh, Mahua literature and because they were really heavily influenced by um, Chinese literature in okay. mainland China. So that was the mainstream. So kind of Lu Xun was really their kind of um, uh, exam- an iconic, assembly, yeah, an iconic yeah. figure. Okay. So they really, everyone was... And um, for social realist writer, in, yep. just to clarify like, the term, mm. uh, it would be writers who are interested mm. in exploring social issues, uh, I imagine, or trying to depict reality. Yeah, so uh, it's also uh, hard to divide because some, some uh, scholars would say that actually they are not doing real social realism, like what maybe Josh Lukash was talking about, but they were like socialist literature. Okay. So so it depends on on the works that they wrote. So but usually they were more I think it's a little bit uh, similar to uh, the Asas Lima Pulo debate whether it's seni untuk seni atau seni untuk masyarakat. Okay. So, seni untuk seni versus seni untuk masyarakat. masyarakat. Okay. So it's quite similar especially during the same period in the 50s where um the writers would uh, there were writers who say that we should write about society and we should uh, Use writing to uplift the morale of the society. Yes, yes, okay. that 
would be kind of uh, broadly categorized as the social realist camp. Okay. And, and since the 50s, and there were kind of modernist writers, especially coming from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they um, they worked in Singapore in in the newspapers, so, so they kind of brought in the kind of modernist writing, uh, modernist literary ideas, and which is what like uh, what was it e- experimental, and they they say pure literature. Okay, so purely we are talking about literature, and they don't like those uh, domestic sentences. Okay, so we want to like about literature, about our lives, our about aesthetics. Mm, okay, yeah. I see. So, nineteen fifty-five was the people would always categorize um nineteen fifty-five as the arrival of modernism in 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 Mahua literary scenes because of the um the founding of one uh, magazine called Chao Fun. Oh, okay, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So, why do you think Mahua literature is, you know, really undergoing this kind of? Uh, 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 it's re- it's receiving attention that it's uh, that it's getting today. Like, what's uh, why why are people sort of now started to look at you know this uh, feel reason. as if you know it they've discovered something new when the fact that it's always existed and it's always uh, been sort of like vibrant. Yeah, in recent years, it's quite obviously because of the in US academia when they brought in the idea of Sanophone studies, like a newly minted term, Sanophone studies. And these scholars, they were originally in the US um, universities and from Asian American studies and or Chinese literature. And so they want to complicate the boundaries of Chinese uh, studies. Okay. So um, so instead of calling it, say, Chinese language literature, mm. they use the word Sinophone study to, yes. to speak of what the language being not bound to one country, is it? Yes, not, okay. only, yeah, yeah, not only language, but also kind of identity. Because okay. when they talk about Chinese, it's always, people always refer it to China, mainland China. Mainland okay, China. Right. And so it is also a position to resist the the kind of China centrism, mm-hmm. and so um, when these these scholars they are literary scholars, so they would find that oh, so Mahua literature is the best example of how they can show that uh, Chinese writings can flourish outside mainland China, and they have been there for many years, and they don't project their national imaginaries towards China, but the local identity that they are focused on, but they write in that. Cinetic script that is the Chinese language okay. so well. And, yeah. Must they always address, the Mahua literature, must you always address mm. issues that are related to Malaysia? Um, not necessarily. There are writers who write about other things, especially uh, when you say um, there are many Mahua writers now based in Taiwan. They will write about Taiwan, but Actually, the mainstream, um, the contents that they have, they have been focusing on are still uh, about Malaysia, about their Malaysian experience. Mm. So, uh, for this Sinophone Studies scholars, they started with um, this writings, Mahua writings in Taiwan. So, actually, they started looking at this and said, these are good literature, but they are published in Taiwan and these writers are now naturalized as Taiwanese citizens, but they write about Malaysia, about Sarawak especially. Mm-hmm. There are a few very good writers uh, write about novels in uh, in Sarawak. So it's like they they look at Malaysian literature through Taiwan. 
Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. these are a few. Uh, for example, the writers like Ng Kim Chu, Chang Kui Xing, uh, Li Yongping. These are the names that have been associated uh, with the Taiwanese. It has a Taiwanese connection. Taiwanese connection, and these are the names that the U.S. Um, scholars have uh, been paying attention to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, paid attention to. Right. What are the characteristics of Mahua literature? What are the themes that you know they usually tackle? Yeah, there are varying issues that they have been uh, working on. Uh, but I think since we could say roughly since the 70s, the, the Chinese identity and Chinese position in, in Malaysia has been very at the forefront. And for example, Ng Kim Chu, uh, one uh, important Mahua writer who, whose work have been translated into English, Slow Boat to China. So he wrote about the communist history, for example. I think for him, um, the Malayan communist history is also part of the Malayan Chinese history. So he, he dealt with a lot of... He, he has published kind of trilogy on his communist um, story. So I think these writers, they have been reflecting upon the Chinese um, identity in um, Malaysia or Singapore or Sarawak and their connection with the local people and also for example, the Aboriginal peoples and in the terms of issues about education, language, all sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. But, um, you know, uh, talking about this Mahua literature, it's almost as if um, you keep reinforcing also that there is a sort of strong Taiwanese connection, right? Mm. And that would really locate a lot of the I guess the focus mm. towards like a post-war kind of like development mm. of mm. literature that yes. is at the core of what we consider as Mahua. Mm. But you also sort of like suggested earlier that the Chinese community here has been writing mm. since at least the late 19th century with the emergence of Chinese newspaper. Mm. That there is the sort of like pre-war moment, mm. say between 1919 to the Japanese occupation of Malaya. Mm. Uh, that would have been as also a very interesting and vibrant sort of like mm. space. Is that looked at at all by scholars who study Mahua literature? Or, yeah, I think... Or is that receiving less attention? Yes, why I is th- that so? I think they are receiving lef- less attention. I think it's a kind of a common practice in the studies of um, literature mm-hmm. in contemporary world because we tend to study... Uh, the more recent. The more recent uh, literature, okay. contemporary or at least modern, okay. modern literature. And we pay less attention to uh, literature before that modern period. And we, we So why would that period not be classified as modern? Uh, yeah, that's I, w- I want to one. I want to sort of just share this with you. I think mm. I, I was reading this uh, magazine. I mm. think it was a school magazine, Peitai. Mm. It's mm. a girls' school, right? Mm. And one of the most beautiful sort of like passage that I've read is actually about this uh, schoolgirl who started to sort of like reflect mm. uh, on her life, but then telescopes that reflection into mm. thinking about the galaxy and mm. the universe mm. and that kind of like ability to sort of like think so expansively mm. about her place in not just the world but also in relation to the universe. I ah. think as a, a very sort of like beautiful sort of poetic ring that is not entirely mm. social, re- it's not social realist, mm. but it's not actually also entirely modernist, right? Yes. Uh, there is mm. the very existential sort of like yeah. question that plays out mm. that captures, you know, that particular interesting juncture mm. where changes in the language is happening and all that kind of like stuff. And yeah. I thought that is actually something mm. Yeah, could I think be that, looked at that really makes sense. So when I say people usually categorize the kind of arrival of modernism in Mahalajit in the 50s, so some scholars really kind of debunk um, this, this claim saying that we 
uh, this kind of modernism was actually in the 50s was actually kind of brought over from Hong Kong or, or other okay. places in and actually with some US influence as well because the magazine was kind of ah, sponsored, sponsored inside, right. by Asia Foundation. Ah. So um, I think this is still underexplored category, uh, underexplored issue that we should really look into it uh, more in the future because as uh, what you said, um, there were uh, traces of modernist writings mm. in that period. I, I suppose they, they are because I, I read some uh, newspapers in the 20s, uh, especially their literary supplements. They were really interesting elements saying like uh, what you have uh, described. Yeah. Like the I suppose during a period of transition where yes. uh, there's a mm. change in the mm. nature of the, how we communicate in the Chinese language, yes. that's also a period where people are more willing to play with the language, right? Yes, especially when these writers, they kind of migrated from China to another world. Mm-hmm. So they, they are explored to different experience and different people, different languages. So actually they try to experience, uh, experiment a new kind of writing also, I think. But at the same time, that ancestral roots, like they're, because they're writing in Chinese and mm-hmm. they, they still see themselves as that um, descendants of that Tradition. Uh, yeah, yeah, tradition. So uh, how do they really negotiate the identity? It's a very underexplored um, um, issue, I think, mm. before war. Mm. All right, so let's take a break. Uh, you're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon. And this week, we're joined by Sho Ying Sin. Uh, she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University. And we've been talking about uh, Mahua literature. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Sho Ying Sin. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University, and we've been talking about Mahua literature. Uh, I want to clarify this. Uh, so, Mahua literature is, uh, I guess, has a very strong connection with Taiwan, right? Mm. So, does that mean that all the literature, they're published there and their readership is based like, elsewhere? Is that how it works? or? Actually, um, there are um, local publishing industry in Chinese, so um, there are also a lot of um, local Mahua writers writing in Chinese and published in Malaysia. And so um, the readers are in Malaysia as well. But those um, writers who are based in Taiwan, they are getting more attention because of um, in the Chinese readership um, um, sphere, actually, if you want an award in Taiwan, a literary award, it's a big recognition of your work. And if you got your book published in Taiwan, it's really a, a, it means that you have achieved a certain kind of milestone of your creative writing uh, career. So those writers, they are getting uh, more attention, but actually there are a lot of um, local writers as well in, in Malaysia who get less attention. So with the recent interest in the Sinophone studies, there are also scholars who complain that scholars have been paying too much attention to the Taiwan-based Mahua writers, mm. but yeah, kind mm. of overseas overseeing local writers. Right. What are the platforms that would support, say, a local publishing industry in the Chinese language, mm. say, from the 50s to the 60s onwards? Uh, is it primarily independent sort of like publishing houses or are there also, you know, newspaper kind of like a section, literary sort of like pullouts that would actually, you know, help promote you know, yes. uh, literary sort of like interest? Mm. So the literary supplements in newspapers have been a very important um, platform for Mahua literary writings to be published since the founding of um, newspaper, Chinese newspaper in Nanyang in Singapore and Malaysia. So... 
the polemics, the debates, and the writings have all published in, in newspapers, literary supplements, and and also there are magazines, books. Uh, so when when it comes to let's say indie publishing, so I always had that, have this idea that uh, Mahua literature or the Chinese publishing industry in Malaysia has always been indie uh-huh. <laughs> because there are no government support actually uh, so all publishers are independent publishers mm. and uh, they make enough sales to keep publishing well it depends so they uh, so they must not be pure literary publishing house okay. there is one actually quite uh, important one founded by some writers themselves so they keep um, publishing on creative pieces but other local publishers, they couldn't afford to just publish literary works. So, of course, they have to do like other things. Like textbooks and all that, yeah. uh, stationaries and yeah. stuff like everything. Yeah, they are also fo- they have to focus press. on like social issues and other cultural books as okay. well. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Mm. You, know, um, you know, when we talk about language in Malaysia, one of the things that uh, is often the bugbear of discussion mm. is how people see mm. uh how language is sort of like being used, right? We often see it as being sort of like contained within its own world mm-hmm. and as if the language is not... Uh, people who speak one one language is not actually communicating across the language to yes. other people. Mm-hmm. So how do you, in, in your sort of like study of Mahua literature, what are some of the examples in which uh, you see authors or in the case of stories actually showing that there are sort of like intercultural sort of like exchanges going on. Mm. And what what kind of examples are you able to sort of like, you know? Mm, I uh, think um, intercultural connections song. have been there since maybe the late um, 19th centuries because when the Chinese came here, they have to also know the local language. So they came up with dictionaries. So those dictionaries are quite interesting. I can't remember the exact um, oh, date. Of, tong, is it? Yeah, Lei Zi Hua Yi Tong Yu. Or something. Yeah, so they they use Chinese uh, character to pronounce Malay. But actually, yeah. you read in Hokkien. Or yes, they read like, in Hokkien yeah. or other uh, uh, dialects. Or, or Teochew or something. Yes. Right. Can you so, give us examples of that? <laughs> uh, so, like, you know, if you read it in, say, the Mandarin language, mm. if you read it in Mandarin, it mm. will not make sense. Mm. Like, it wouldn't sound right. But actually, if you read in Hokkien, then it has the approximation of the Malay. Yeah. Uh, where it looks like I, yeah, or But Kereta, the character are uh, the same, Han. Or signatures, yeah. Chinese characters, but you have to read it not in Mandarin, but oh. in Hokkien or in Cantonese, so that you can get um, yeah, or Malay, Anjing. Uh, yeah, you get Anjing. If you want Anjing, then mm. you, you know mm. they will choose the word character mm. to pronounce for you to pronounce Anjing. Oh, mm. but it's but, but you have to read it in Hokkien or Cantonese. But the words are Malay words. The words are the words are Malay. The meaning behind it is Malay, mm. but the the character, the character is, is a Chinese, Chinese character. Oh. Yeah. So they made dictionaries in that way to help the the diasporic Chinese community to know Malay. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that is also one part. They also translated some um, Chinese uh, classical stories. I think they they got a lot of help from the Indonesian. Uh, Chinese um, uh, counterparts because the Chinese in Indonesian they have already translated a, a lot yeah. of uh, works also so um, the Chinese in Singapore and, and uh, Malaya they also uh, kind of read those um, translations as well okay. so in terms of intercultural exchanges I think uh, one important period is during the nation building mm-hmm. period so when they know that we need a national language uh, we need a lingua franca when we are going to build a new nation so many Chinese writers um, in Malaysia that in Malaya during that time they agreed that we have to use Malay mm-hmm. they know that Malay is the national language and they have actually organised a lot of classes and 
and they want to learn Malay, they want to write Malay, they want to um, translate Malay into Chinese and Chinese into Malay. Mm-hmm. So that was the period, especially during the 40s to 60s, that they, they say that they are doing a lot of the kind of intercultural things when they publish magazines mm-hmm. and in bilingual magazines and they're doing a lot of dictionaries as well. Okay. Yeah. So, but that kind of generation has, we have kind of lost. Why, why yeah. is that? Why is that? It's not, is that not sustained? Because I think mm-hmm. that generation is not, uh, it doesn't only come from one cultural community, yeah. right? Yeah. You see uh, Dewan Basad and Pustaka actively mm. translating a lot of like, uh, literature, not just Chinese, but mm. actually global literature from all over yeah, the world into yeah. the Malay language. Yes. And, mm. and of course, likewise, the Chinese community is doing mm. the same. Mm. Uh, there is really a, a strong sort of like desire mm. to actually try to find a way to bridge mm. the language sort of like divide through mm. translation. Uh, yes. And there's a lot of investment in translation mm. as a sort of like political project in mm. some sense. of the, uh, mm. uh, Why has that sort of like lost its momentum? Today, we just assume that everyone's either speaks one of the sort of like four main yeah. languages in Malaysia yeah. and, and, and then don't really if you don't cross, then yeah. well too bad <laughs> well I think the simple explanation to it people would really blame it to May 13 okay. so after May 13 everything's changed and mm-hmm. so we you know with the national culture policy and a lot of things but I think one issues that we also have to pay attention to is the loss of kind of third world internationalism okay, right. in, in our part of the world. Can you explain a bit what the third world internationalism <laughs> is? I don't think <laughs> Malaysians, uh, a lot of us today um, are familiar with that. Well, I don't think I can provide really a clear explanation, but I think from the writings that I read from the Chinese literature or the uh, literary debates mm. in the 50s, especially 50s and 60s, they had this idea of a third world alliance. Okay. And Take an example of the students from Nanyang University, Nanta in Singapore. Mm-hmm. It's a Chinese university, and the students they they were very they went to Bandung Conference. Okay, uh, the Ban- so in, that's in nineteen fifty five, sort of like Afro Asian conference. Yeah, yeah, but I think they went to the Afro Asian uh, Student Conference. Okay, yeah. So what came up was that they want to build alliances with the students from the Asian mm. and uh, African countries and okay. that kind of third world alliance as okay. against um, um, So in today's context, we normally consider third world as countries that are not underdeveloped, under, underdeveloped right? Yeah, but yeah. back then, third world was actually a kind of like political spirit yes. that was trying to sort of like bring together countries that have mm. just recently mm. uh, gained their independence from, say, uh, Western colonial yes. powers, am I right? Yeah, yeah. And and in that sense, so they see, I think this community, they, they would, this student, young students, they would see that Chinese and Malay language, they were language that were uh, kind of oppressed by imperialist language, mm-hmm. especially English. English. Right. So the students during uh, in Nanta, actually, they, they say, we don't want to learn English, we want to learn Malay. Mm. And of course... In fact, uh, there was a very vibrant Malay society in Nanta, wasn't Malay there? Lang- Malay language. Malay, yes, yeah. Malay learning uh, uh, environment as well. Okay. So they, they refused to learn the colonial language. Right, right. But I think, I like Go Pao Kun would say that, uh, Go Pao Kun, the Singapore dramatist, I think he mentioned that in 70s or 80s when he was in jail, mm. 
these students actually they regretted of not learning good English <laughs> enough because that time they were so they were revolutionary and and they want to learn Malay mm. as a kind of alliance. Wow. Yeah. So Lee Kuan Yew sort of like win <laughs> on the ideological level. I think so. <laughs> so I think that's also one reason why we don't see Chinese and Malay or other kind of small languages as uh, we don't put them on the same platform to think about. Uh, How do you build alliances across? Build alliances right. and that we have to understand each other. We see them in kind of different power dynamics okay. right now and we don't reflect ourselves enough of um, the influence of the English language. So mm-hmm. we also see, we usually uh, regard English as a very common uh, you know, lingua franca. Right, right. So it's easy to communicate with people in, in English. Right, right, right. So that's been taken as a given la, so without yes. actually questioning what is a sort of like historical yeah, basis. Yeah. In and it's also quite ironic that um, it is true that um, Sinophone's studies the Sinophone theory in US and the translation has been done in the English language, then Malaysians know Mahua literature. Right, right. So the irony is there as yes. well. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Um, now the themes that are covered by uh, Mahua literature, do you think that they are still relevant today? Uh, are they still talking about the same issues, mm. uh, same themes, same topics? I think there are uh, young writers coming up. So while the mainstream has always been the Chinese identity, things like that, but I think there are voices who want to really go beyond that and people who are fed up with that, they, they don't want to talk only about identity. I think uh, I can maybe introduce one writer, uh, a female writer who, whose name is Hock Sofong and her works have been also just recently been translated into English and she was also featured in Georgetown Literary Festival. Okay. Her works, I think Sofong's works, she kind of goes beyond that burden of uh, Chinese writers writing about Chinese identity or language or education in Malaysia. So she focuses on women issues, on religion and her protagonists are not only uh, Chinese, but also other characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and she deals with a lot of um, daily issues, not necessarily that kind of identity. Okay. Um, okay. What's the name of this book? Uh, Lake Like a Mirror. Lake Like a Mirror. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. it's published by an international press? Or yeah, what? it's oh. published by Granta in the UK. Granta, okay. Yeah, so also, also an independent press. Yes. So you're, not, you're saying, what you're suggesting is also that not only the big, sort of like publishing house uh, paying attention to Mahua literature such as I don't know Penguin or, or yeah. your HarperCollins or yeah, whatever yeah. but even sort of more independent and mm. uh, with a strong sort of like you know investment in the care of literature such as Granta are also sort of like putting time yeah. into it. Yeah I think this, uh, this is also quite uh, interesting as well because um, the writers I mentioned like Eun Kim Chiu and Chang Kui Sing those writers their works are translated into English but published through the academic press like Columbia UP okay yeah. uh, this is because um, the, 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 the scholars want to s- uh, research on them so they have to translate them right but okay, okay. Sokfong's case is quite interesting that you, it is um, published by an independent uh, publisher and the, the a freelance translator mm-hmm. whose name is Natal, Natasha Bruch and yeah, she did great job in translating her works, and it's not really commissioned by anyone. But she just felt that she liked the stories, and she translated those. Have there been actually other writers from other sort of cultural background that contributed to Mahal literature? Ah, you mean non-Chinese? So like, yeah, non-Chinese. Mm. 
Because you would find, for example, in a Coralie instance, a lot of say Peranakan sort of like mm. Chinese right, are right using the Malay language, mm. and even today there are mm. not just Peranakan, mm. basically. Chinese are writers who write in Malay or write mm. in English and other languages. Have there been a sort of like, you know, a, a, well, they, that kind of... They, diff- yeah. yeah, in terms of the Chinese language, let's say they write in Han language, it's, mm-hmm. it's quite rare. Mm-hmm. Especially there are some writers who were kind of migrated from Taiwan or China, but they are not really kind of overseas Chinese, that migration wave, but they came recently from from China or Taiwan, so okay, they write the in Chinese, Chinese and, la- and the, yeah. they write about Malaysia. I think we can also consider them as part of Mahua okay. literature, or in Singapore's case, they can be Singapore literature mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I think the, the question of Hua, Mahua, that Hua has been, people have been debating that what that Hua uh, means okay. so that Hua can be Chinese language and also Chinese uh, people. So sometimes people will also include Chinese Malaysians' works writing in non-Chinese language as kind of Mahua literature, like okay. um, who who write in Malay or who writes in English okay. can be also considered as part of Mahua literature. See right. who who is defining it. Okay. So in the literary communities, they would also consider Tash Ao's works uh, as Mahua literature sometimes okay. Okay. because he has been translated into Chinese as well. Okay, and right. Tan Tuan Eng's works also. Right. So and if say a Malay author like Usman Awang has been translated into Chinese, would that you consider that as Mahua literature? Well, it depends, I think, who is doing yeah, the definition who, yeah. and for what. But for, uh, why, uh, yeah. in your point of view, would mm. there be a scope in, in, of in course. the most expanded span? Of course, sense of I think term. we have to really talk about that translated um, translated works as um, extension of Mahua literature as well because that is done in the sense of trying to build connection mm-hmm. in that language and working through languages. Mm. So I think that effort also has to be recognised. And I think boundary is fluid and we really have to keep expanding but not limiting ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Mm. All right, okay, so we have to go soon. Uh, but before that, uh, I know you've recommended one, I guess, mm. book, mm. Lake Like a Mirror by Ho So Fong, right? Mm. Uh, can you recommend other Mua literature that, I guess, typifies mm. what the genre or what the... Mm. the, the For anyone who wants to sort yeah. of like, you know, yeah, take a dip into the... Yeah, in okay. English language, um, because there are not many uh, Mahua literature being translated into English, so for uh, I really recommend Sok Fong's works and also some writers who have been published by the US Academia Press that I mentioned just now, like Ng Kim Chu. He has a short story collection called Slow Boat to China and other stories. And also Chang Kui Sing, Chang Kui Sing who is from uh, Sarawak. Okay. He was born in Miri, if I'm not mistaken. He's written a trilogy on Borneo, rainforest, and a lot of s- stories. What's the title? The, um, the one that has been translated, it's called My South Sea's Sleeping Beauty. It's okay. the third of his trilogy, which is quite um, a pity because I think the first two are the best. Okay. <laughs> but because it's diffi- very difficult to translate his works, his choice of language, his okay. Chinese character is very difficult to translate. So th- I think that's why they choose the third of the trilogy. Mm, okay, okay, cool. Yeah, what about the non-translated one? Mm, well, mm, like Li Zishu, mm-hmm. who is a, also a women writer, born in the 70s. So her works like Ye Pusa, I, I think a short stories collection, Wild Buddha. Wild Bodhisattva. Yeah, Wild Guan Yin or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah a short story collection is very good. And she has also a novel uh, focused on May 13. 
Okay. Uh, it's called 告别的年代 an era of farewell. It's quite recommended. Oh, that's very poetic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I would also even recommend like the fact that we do have sort of、uh, newspapers that are now digitized from、mm. you know our, our history. If you go to the National Library of Singapore's yes, website. Yes. You can easily access all the old newspapers from the early twentieth century.、Yeah. You go to NL National Library Board、so、Singapore、mm. sort of、mm. like、website, you get the newspaper.、Mm. You go to NUS Library sort of like portal,、mm. you get a lot of books and yeah,、uh, yeah. school annuals. That's an important、uh, place. Those、mm. are you know firsthand sources mm. that mm. you can actually access a lot、mm. of this、mm. literature, and they're、mm. available for download for free.、Mm. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, so that's actually、uh, important. My research site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where I usually spend my time there、yeah. in Singapore. So the writers that I mentioned just now were kind of contemporary writers, but there are also many writers、uh, before them who are who worth um, um, reading as well. Like I can also recommend one whose name is Wei Beihua, who is Li Wen's father. Okay. Yeah,、oh, I, cool. I mentioned to you before.、Oh, He、yeah. they recently also、uh, published his collections of. Stories and poems. His student name is Wei Beihua, and his、um, uh, real name is Li Xuanming.、Okay. So, yeah,、Ooh. recommend as well. Great.、Mm. All right, thank you very much, Shou Yingxin. You just heard from Shou Yingxin. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Malaysia Institute, Australian National University, and she's joined by Simon Soon. And we've been talking about Mahua literature. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio, or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm dot my.、Uh, don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can find on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks once again, Shou Yingxin and Simon Soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharudin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM eighty nine point nine, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm. my or find us on iTunes. BFM eighty nine point nine, the business station.